Hi everyone, and welcome to the Illustration Department Podcast. I am your host, Giuseppe Castellano. In this podcast, I talk to folks in illustration, animation, and other creative fields about their beginnings, their successes, and the bumps and bruises they've experienced along the way. In this episode, I talk to illustrator Aaron Hunting. In 2012, Aaron decided to draw a grumpy cat. She posted it online and it went viral. Among other topics, Aaron and I cover the pros and mostly cons of going viral. We chat about our love of 80s video games and cartoons. We discuss what illustrators can and can't do when their art is stolen. And Aaron explains why she thinks illustration is a long and sparse career. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Are you in are you in Melbourne proper or do you are you on the outskirts? I'm probably about ooh, 20 minutes out of Melbourne city and it feels it at times. It's very suburban where I live. Mm-hmm. What's it like there? I've never been. Oh, it's a really cosmopolitan city. It's sort of unofficially known as the art center of Australia. And there's sort of this funny rivalry between Melbourne and Sydney, maybe like Los Angeles and New York, where Melbourne is sort of known as a snooty, you know, everyone wears black and sips lattes and coffees in the city laneways. And Sydney's sort of the, you know, the, the glamour queen of Australia. So it's, it's a lovely city, though. Lots of art galleries and, and stuff like that. We, our weather is pretty... Um, pretty shifty though in what way (laughs) it's known as like having four seasons in the one day and at the moment it is winter and really really feeling it it is really cold you were mentioning that like there's an art community there um is it something that you participate in frequently or do you like how do you tap into that i'm not really no there's um definitely a certain comic scenes in here um there's like a comic studio here in um fitzroy in melbourne which is like a very trendy trendy suburb of melbourne there's a few people there that make zines and have quite you know they organize um little galleries and stuff like that i'm not really involved in that for no no reason really um i was involved in a kind of art scene i guess when i studied fine art about 10 years ago um the kind of people there were more middle-aged women which I am now uh <laughs> so we used to visit galleries and you know have coffees and organize um outings and stuff like that which was pretty good but yeah as for myself I'm not really involved in uh, any any um any art groups here gotcha what led you what led you so I kind of want to go back a little bit like what led you to studying fine art I think I was like um in my like mid to late 20s at the time and I had been wanting to do some freelance illustration work and wasn't really getting really lucky with it I was you know back then it was your social media was in the form of DeviantArt um, and I just sort of wanted more and I thought well if I learn fine art it would be more about learning about the basics and about color theory to sort of enhance my illustration work I wasn't actually going there to be a famous painter or even a good painter Mm -hmm. so um I enrolled there and really found a good social outlet there too because I've always sort of got on with people of all ages and I met some really good friends um great teachers one in particular who um taught me about color and 
Um, yeah, and I also learned how to use gouache for the first time, gouache on paper, which was sort of like a real eye-opener because uh, apart from using my Copic markers at the time, I actually wasn't doing much traditional artwork. Were you finding it to be a bit more bit freeing or more frustrating? Like how was working traditionally? And I know that Copic markers are traditional, but, you know, your your style now is a little bit of an amalgam of digital and traditional you were using gouache. I mean, does that does that exercise in using traditional media has that now influenced what you do today? So I should clarify: I had been using traditional media to an extent, but it only been black ink pens, so I hadn't used color traditionally, and it was a real it was a really, really, really positive experience, and sort of blew my mind because all of a sudden. Uh, things that I could see in my mind I was seeing on paper, like things, you know, like my illustrations sort of look like things I could see in books and, and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. I also really discovered life drawing there, which was using charcoal, which was another medium I'd never used before. And I loved life drawing. I used to arrive one hour early to class and sort of sketch in my sketchbook while I waited for my classmates to arrive and so forth. And I found that, um, Instead of drawing what I thought I could see, I actually had to learn to draw what I could see. Mm-hmm. And, of course, learning shadow and the value of shadow and light, which I've always sort of had an interest in. I learn about that a lot, which I have actually have adapted to my illustration work now. So mm-hmm. it was a really, really positive experience. What sort of things were you drawing when you were a kid? So going back a little bit further. Um, pirates. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've got like because my um, grandfather was a was a wannabe. Well, he was an artist, but he didn't have it as a profession. He used to um, away whenever we revisited his house, he had copious amounts of like little pads and um, pens for me, and my sister to draw biro, and he would then collect them into these albums. Which at the time you thought, oh, whatever, you know. But now as an adult, having these, they're you know so so good to look back on and. Yeah, I drew a lot of, so in these sketchbooks that he collected, I've got pirates, I've got, um, gosh, cats. I had a real thing for dogs. I think dogs, like pound puppies and stuff, a real thing of the 80s. Oh, of course. Like when I hit primary school age and the, the lady is like sixth grade, fifth grade, where a lot of the girls in my class would, um, had a more of a tendency to draw like really pretty flowers in vases and girls with long magical hair and dresses. I just... It didn't interest me at all. I was like drawing men with um, big stubbly chins and muscly bulldogs and and like kids um, skateboarding down the road and just mm-hmm. like with mohawks, just stuff, I guess, that inverted commas that, you know, the girls sort of weren't drawing at, at the time in my class anyway. Speaking of 80s, a lot of the types of work that you do now is 80s influence. When back then when you were a kid – uh, were you into like 80s cartoons and video games and that sort of thing? I definitely, um, yeah, oh, yeah, of course, because back then, God, there was no like iPads or internet. So you sort of just, you know, were a prisoner to the TV quite happily watching Danger Mouse. I actually grew up in a quite, because being Australian, I grew up on a diet of UK and US cartoons. It was He-Man, Snorks. Care Bears, I was a big Punky Brewster and Rainbow Bright fan, mm-hmm. anything you could think of. And I also um, begged my dad for a Nintendo system and I ended up getting an Amiga 500. But 
I still got the games on that. So again, I was um, playing Roger Rabbit and Ninja Turtles on my Amiga and and other other stuff like that. Did you ever get a Nintendo ultimately? I got one when I was about fifteen. I went and bought myself one and got Tetris and Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. So and then a little bit later, I actually got a Super Nintendo. So I did fulfill that 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 fantasy that dream. That's um, right. <laughs> Uh, you know, speaking of Nintendo really quickly, the, uh, the origin of Mario is actually kind of interesting. It started off with Donkey Kong and that's Donkey Kong is an, is a, is something that I've seen you create. And, uh, that was sort of a last ditch effort for Nintendo because they were, they were sort of struggling to get into the video game scene and they had this sort of young in-house illustrator designer, Shigeru Miyamoto. And they said, they asked him, they were like, you know, can you, can you help us out here? Can you design something that will be successful, not only in Japan, but also elsewhere and Mm -hmm. using beauty and the beast as influence, he created a video game, which is essentially a love triangle between a gorilla, a carpenter, not a plumber, but a carpenter and a woman. Really? Yeah. And it, it obviously sold gangbusters, which then transitioned to which led to Mario getting his own game in Mario Brothers before the Super Mario Brothers game. So there was that one Mario Brothers game right before where it was essentially like Mario and Luigi battling it out in the sewers. Mm-hmm. And that's when they transitioned. That's when they decided, you know what, let's go from carpenter to plumber, which would make the environment make more sense. So then Mario and Luigi became plumbers. And at the time, his name wasn't even Mario, but they were deciding what to name him. His, his earlier names were Jumpman was one. <laughs> Mr. Video was another one. So anyways, a fo- bunch of folks were at Nintendo were in the U.S., in their U.S. office, cu- trying to come up with names. And the building that they were in was owned by a, an Italian-American by the name of Mario Sagali. And he burst in, he interrupted their meeting and demanded rent because I guess they were, you know, hadn't paid their rent. And uh, anyways, he burst in, demanded his rent. They said, oh, yeah, 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 we'll pay you. And he leaves and they all looked at each other and said, uh, the name is Mario. So that's how he got his name. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. I never knew any of that. And uh, later, um, Shigeru said that the reason he has a hat and a mustache and Mm -hmm. a large nose and suspenders is because in the eight bit form, there are only so many configurations of, of poses that you can kind of come up with. So we had to like give Mario these sort of vi- these props just to help convey those movements a little bit more clearly. So that's why he wears what he wears. Gosh, who'd have thought, hey? Yeah, it's wild. I just like the that's fact that I just like the fact that my one of my favorite video game characters of all time <laughs> is an Italian American first generation like me. So that's you know. It's all about me. I, I wonder if that Mario ever knew about that and whether he played the game. Later, he was pretty silent about it, but I, I read that later someone asked him about it and he said, mm-hmm. I guess I'm still waiting for my royalties. Mm, there you go. Yeah, so there you have it. Um, you know, I actually have the, I don't know if um, you remember, I have the, you remember the little handheld Nintendo games? They were like two screens sure. or one screen. I've got the Donkey, my very first one was Donkey Kong 2. I've still got it. 
and it's, you know, Donkey Kong um, chained up and little Donkey Kong has to go and unchain, you know, the four, the four locks and Donkey, Donkey, Kong, Donkey Kong comes falling down and little, little Donkey Kong Jr. catches him and stuff. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, going back to 80s cartoons, uh, He-Man obviously was, was a big favorite of mine. I liked uh, Transformers, Thundercats, Silverhawks. Uh, was another one mask was a kind of like an obscure one where these uh these characters would would get into these vehicles that would change into one or two or three different things like a car would turn into a helicopter and they would all have masks and helmets and these cool attachments to their gear um so mask was another good one and this other kind of obscure one was thundar which i loved and it was basically thundar was like a ripoff of star wars um and I don't know, Conan the Barbarian, essentially. It was like mix those two together and you got, because the main character had a lightsaber and his best friend was a gigantic, like Wookiee-like creature. So uh, I don't remember either of those. Maybe they were, maybe they were, maybe they were a little too, too obscure. I think some of them, like the Thundercats, I remember them, but I wasn't so much into the Thundercats. I wasn't really into Shira either, but I did like He-Man. And mm. do you remember a cartoon called Cops? No. That was really cool too. About sort of like a in the future, these these policemen running around. New, uh, I think it was New York City or some American city. That was oh very eighties as well. I totally remember that. I absolutely remember that. That's and it, right. And they had these like really cool like vehicles. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I did remember that. That was like YouTube. YouTube the theme song, and it will all come flooding back. <laughs> Um, all right, so let's let's uh, we could talk about '80s cartoons for until the cows come home, but let's uh, let's keep going a little bit. So, you decided, like in your 20s, to go to art school. You were like, you said, you thought to yourself, I, I think I'm going to make a go at being an illustrator. How did you get that mm-hmm. first job? Um, I got contacted actually while I was doing art school about designing some. Uh, figurines for Burger King which there aren't a lot of Burger Kings here in Melbourne or Australia but I got contacted via an art director via Mo- do you remember a website called mojizoo.com no I'm not familiar with that was it was called I'm pretty sure it was mojizoo.com and it was a website where you got to draw your own character designs and then get people to vote for them. And then they would like move up a tier. So they would like, no- you'd knock out someone else's design until there was obviously one man standing. Mm-hmm. And then you would win $100, which I did win once. And I got the, the check from, I think it was America. So it was legit. But he'd seen my character designs on that on that website and contacted me. He thought my designs were squishy and round, would probably make some good um, some good toys for Burger King. So... I went to their offices, which were in Melbourne, and they were so cool. They had, like, all these, you know, chicken run Burger King toys and, and stuff like that, stuff that I actually had at my own home. And I did did do some sketches for them and got paid, but I don't think they were ever made into the Burger King toys. Why not? Do you, did, did the job just sort of die on the, on the vine? I th- I've got it from memory. I've probably got the email somewhere. I don't think the clients were really impressed with my designs. Like he was fine with it, but I don't think the, the clients work somehow. So right. I think I did one more thing of work for them, but that, that was it. I did my best. So mm-hmm. 
How do you how do you over the years? I mean, you've been doing this for now for oh, oh, ten plus years. What is your process in terms of finding clients? Because you have a client list that is is fairly long and and uh, prestigious and diverse. I mean, Tegan and Sarah is one of your clients. I mean, how how do you get that work? Well, going back to um, I think it was like two thousand and ten. That was around about the, like a. I'd done the Burger King toys a couple of years prior to that. And then I was sharing a studio with another Melbourne illustrator at the time. And he talked about these art postcards that he had made up and he would send around to various people he wanted to work with, or he thought his work was a good fit for their company. And I thought, Oh, well, that sounds pretty good. And I, you know, it's actually exciting to see your own work printed up. So I got some art cards uh, printed up just with a couple of um, my illustrations, just as a bit of a, a teaser and on the other side of the the art card was just my details and I think it was like my phone number and email address but anyway there was like a directory of publishers and stuff so I chose out a heap of Australian ones some American ones and I sent them all off and probably maybe six months later I got contacted by an education company here from Melbourne called Blake Education and they were asking me to do a test for a book they were doing so I did that, and I, I got the book. Um, it was called The Frog, the Frog's Kiss, educational <laughs> book. It's not, not my proudest moment looking back, and I did my best at the time, but I think I was, like, drawing it all on pencil, drawing it, all my sketches in pencil, inking it, scanning it, and, and colouring it in Photoshop. Um, so that – and when I, I asked the, the art director I was working with, I said, oh, do you mind if I ask? do you mind if I ask where you found me? And she said, oh, no, no, no worries. It was an art card. So I thought, oh, out of all those art cards, I've got one job, which was great. It was good money. It was a good experience. Um, as far as like Tegan and Sarah and, and uh, clients like that, Tegan and Sarah, actually Sarah is a big fan of cats and she has a couple of cats of her own. So, I just, for fun, I was seeing them because I think she was uploading a lot of cat photos. So for fun, I drew drew her cats and they liked them and was about, maybe again about six months, even 12 months later, her agency uh, or their agency emailed me asking if I'd like to be on board with doing some promotional artwork for their upcoming album at the time, including the cats. And my cat designs actually end up being like big... Um, cardboard cutouts at their concerts so that was pretty cool oh that is cool did you get any free tickets when they were playing near you um i know i'd already paid for the tickets but because <laughs> <laughs> i don't like it i don't want to think oh, i'm expecting free tickets i did pay for them which i was happy to do but i did get to meet the girls backstage and they were very very lovely and you know they knew of my work and knew that I'd drawn Grumpy Cat, I suppose that's what I was probably most known for then, maybe now, and they were lovely girls. I think they said, oh, you know, we give you free tickets, and I said, oh, no, I've already bought them. So, <laughs> so yeah, they, they were lovely lovely to work with mm-hmm. and lovely girls to meet. It was sort of those, um, you know, you think, oh, gosh, are they going to be as nice as you expect, but they were. Mm-hmm. But as far as um, going back to your original question, the the, the client work, a lot of the well-known companies that I've worked for, I think, have just seen my work online and contacted me via there, although I still do use the art postcards. Um, How just, much does it cost to send a postcard from Melbourne to New York? One postcard. 
I think it's probably about two dollars, two Australian dollars. Which is what roughly American? Probably eighty cents. Our our mm-hmm. dollar's pretty bad at the moment. Yeah. But like, I think I've learnt now to sort of cull, you know, cull the th- the the jobs that the books that I don't think would employ me. Like you know, books that have very flowery, pastel sort of, very cute drawings probably aren't going to employ me and it's also with the internet too i do a sort of thing of emailing out people and doing some art postcards because some publishing companies seem to really welcome them others just say we will only accept digital submissions so it's just really a a matter of really googling and and finding out right so you use social media you would say social media is your primary marketing tool i would think so yeah i mean the, the, the people that I have usually contacted via email and the art cards, I don't really hear back from them, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah. It's usually people who want to work with me I'll, um, and they'll email me from seeing social media. Like I got had a work, a work with um, Hachette, Little Brown and Co. And the designer who I worked with was a lovely girl, Stephanie Yang, and she said that she'd found some of my work online and actually had liked a Stephen Universe fan art that I'd drawn and like she could see that I could convey different shapes easily. So that's why I got um, employed for that job. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you mentioned Grumpy Cat. We're talking about social uh-huh. media and we're talking about Grumpy Cat. So in 2012, you decided to create an illustration of Grumpy Cat and you posted mm-hmm. it online. What happened next? I'd seen yeah, on Facebook, I think, a friend had shared a grumpy cat photo and I thought how cute it was, mainly because she was a rag doll, I think. Well, she looked like a rag doll. Like I've got a cat, Louie, who's a rag doll, who people probably, if they follow me on social media, will, um, will be aware of. I've drawn him and adore him and all the rest of it, like most cat owners. And I thought, oh, my God, it looks like a grumpy Louie. I've got to draw this this cat. So... As you said, I, I um, drew it and posted it on social media and I got an email from the owner's brother. He was the one that took the photos of, of Grumpy in the first place and asked me about um, buying the rights to my image and I gave him a price and never heard back from him. It was probably, it must be like this six-month mark. It was, I don't know, it was multiple months later and I um, got a email. It was now from their manager, so the brother wasn't the brother it was their Hollywood manager mm-hmm. asking about buying the rights um again for the image and again I gave him a quote mm-hmm. and he um had to have a little bit of time to think about that and I have to mention at this at this stage while this was all happening that my for whatever reason my drawing had gone viral and of course Grumpy Cat was viral and my and, and my drawing was and it was getting stolen a hell of a lot. It was being sold on Etsy, on T-shirts, on phone cases, via eBay, Redbubble. And I was having to write to these websites and saying this was my drawing. And, it, and it's a bit of a process um, trying to remove artwork mm-hmm. from, from sites like that. Were you, well, so, what, were you successful in any form? I was. The problem with those sites are though it has a waiting time, so I have to um, I think I had to print out a form 
and you know dot and sign and dot all the right things and say yes this is my artwork this is my address and and blah 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 and then upload it to them and then they've got to then look at it and then I guess see proof I think like yeah you had to um, have a link to like the original image so they can say yeah she did it you know she drew it mm-hmm. you know this this amount of time um, but of course while all this is happening these people are still selling the, the T-shirts and the items, so they're still getting their money. And I'm running around, you know, writing all these, you know, sending off all these stuff. So, oh. and they never, I never, like, got reimbursed financially for, for these things. And um, they never got a ban. Like, these sites don't ban or, like, get their IP address and ban these people. They just obviously probably get a slap on the wrist and just keep uploading stolen artwork because if they've, if they're selling one piece of stolen artwork, they're going to be selling multiple, multiple um, stolen artwork. So mm. it really, really was disheartening. So in the end, I did end up selling the the Grumpy Cat image for a price that mm. probably wasn't appropriate. But um, because it was already a success, it was getting. I mean, when I say it was getting, it was getting sold on a hell of a lot. It wasn't just you know one or two a day on eBay. It was getting us. Uh, stolen and sold a lot so in the end I thought best best be rid of it I just couldn't handle the stress and I had work to do and so that's what ended up happening with with the grumpy cat drawing right what did you learn from that experience if anything I mean what did you like if you were to look back on it it's a really really hard one because I I gain work from posting fan art and artwork in general on social media so it's like well I could have just said well I'm not gonna you know post any more fan art or artwork that could be appealing and you know then it won't get stolen but at the same time I'm also going to find it really really hard to get employed so right it's a balancing act you have to you have to do I think exactly I think what I learned is putting value on my own work because it's very easy as a creator to not see the worth in your own artwork or even worth in yourself at times. So I think it actually taught me to stand up for myself a bit more because I didn't have an agent. I don't have an agent. Um, so I was doing all the phone calls and emails and stuff myself. So I think it probably taught me that and just to value my artwork and myself um, and be a bit more, you know, be a bit more kind and just stand up for myself in general. Right. right. And all the while, it's not like you were uh, at home twiddling your thumbs. You were busy. You had uh, you had other responsibilities, but this sort of thing was sort of pulling you away from being creative, from from com- you know, I don't know, meeting schedules and deadlines, and and doing the work that you had to be doing to support yourself as an illustrator. Absolutely. So while I was dealing with the Grumpy Cat <clears throat> manager, I was also dealing with the Grumpy Cat art th- art thieves and. And all the rest of it. So it really was a distraction that was, I mean, I, I wasted probably weeks of my life <laughs> dealing so, with all of that. Uh, so sorry that happened. Did you even, I, I did you, is it true that people were coming at you saying that, that they're, they were claiming that they created the Grumpy Cat illustration and they were coming at you saying like, no, I did this and you didn't? I did have a few of those emails and it made my blood boil. And there was one woman who said, I think they were selling like my drawing on Duna covers or something and like quilts. And I, you know, was saying to him, that was my art. Cause I would try and say to them, this is my artwork. Can you please take it down before I went through all the, 
the rock filling of forms and um, some people would would just take it off. A lot of people didn't. But she was one of the ones that said, I hired my graphic designer to create this illustration. Oh, it is my not, God. It is not yours and I'm going to sue you. And I said, well, okay, you do that. Oh, and then she, she I, you know, I think she took it down from Etsy, but then she, I think, made her own website and she started selling it through that. And I just thought, I, I cannot deal with this. I just, I wasted enough time. And she, yeah. Mm. So. I just want to, I feel like I want to throw something right now. Do you, do you, have you considered or, or this is something that you've t- discussed at all um, with anyone about like, you know, adding watermarks over your illustrations does that do you think that even helps at all i kind of feel like it doesn't to be honest no i i I think i did do it like back i think in the deviant art days about 12 years ago or so but now with photoshop people can just get the eyedropper and just exactly color color over that and to me i sort of want to showcase my artwork looking as good as it can for potential clients and stuff so It's, it is an option, but not one that I choose to go with. The only thing you can do is um, upload your artwork to a lower res. And at the time, I think with the Grand Picat, that was one of the problems because I think I sent the artwork to them, not at a, the highest res, but at a reasonable res. Because I didn't think it was obviously who would have thought that was going to explode like it did. So, And they kept it on their website. So I guess it was easy for people to trace and just, you know, take and, and print on badly printed t-shirts and stuff (laughs) and mobile you know i think it's actually if you look up even now somewhere in asia they've got mobile phone cases with grumpy cat has actually got like my erin hunting on it my signature they obviously just didn't they don't care except somewhere someone's got a mobile phone maybe with with my name on it if anyone's listening to this and and says to themselves well i mean that's great exposure isn't it just no it's not it's just, it's, you know, nah. it's not, you can't pay bills with exposure. And I mean, yeah, it could lead like grumpy cat going viral led to other things that you could do, but the experience probably wasn't worth it. No. And, and a lot of people do come back. Oh, you know, grumpy cats is celebrity and isn't it so great. Your artwork's like in the movie and it's this, it's like, well, no, it's not because if I'd been treated with a bit more respect and fairly, I, I would have. I would have been um, really happy and appreciative of the experience. Mm-hmm. It was actually one of those things where also my name wasn't really, I wasn't really noted as the creator as a lot of logos and stuff aren't, I suppose. So I actually have made a point of putting that um, on my social media and on my website that I did create the mm-hmm. the original image because <clears throat> no one else was going to um, was going to give me that credit. Right. No one's going to do it for you. Exactly. So let's talk about, fan art but uh slightly pleasant more pleasant fan art uh mm-hmm. you're i mean your thing like when i think of you i i fan art is the first thing i think of just because you do it so often you so much you show us process videos you post stuff on instagram and just a, a small example of the kinds of subjects that you've drawn include rugrats where the wild things are McDonald's, the Coyote and Roadrunner, Thundercats, the Flintstones, you know, on and on and on. I've heard folks say, don't put fan art in your portfolio. That is a a fairly common thing that illustrators hear, especially students. Mm -hmm. And I I just don't quite understand why that is, especially if it's done well. If it's done well, who cares what the subject is? It is your interpretation 
of this design. And your, especially with you, your interpretations are far afield from the original designs. Mm-hmm. Well, why, do you, why I, do you do it, I guess, is where I'm going. I think, well, I do it because I, I'm a fan of the pop culture, which would be the, the, the most likely answer. Obviously, there's a lot of fans of pop culture and even illustrators that don't draw it. Um, I think there is a little bit of snobbery among some, not, not all illustrators, some illustrators about fan art. Um, could be there are there is some really badly drawn fan art or just traced traced fan art that people s- will sell at comic cons and and prints and stuff via their their uh, social medias. But I um, I think it's been a really good experience for me personally. Maybe I do do it a little bit too often. It's a great great way for me to wind down doing a Copic fan art illustration after doing a ton of client work. Um, but as I said, yeah, it, it's been a positive experience to me. It's actually, I feel like I've learned how to break down shapes mm-hmm. and re- read shapes and read characters a lot with it. Sure. I mean, when I was in art school, one of the very, you know, one of the main assignments that we would get constantly was copy the masters. I don't see the difference here. I really don't. Mm. It's like if you're copying a, a Baroque painting or SpongeBob and Patrick, the sort of the process is the same. You're looking at something, you're interpreting it and, and reimagining it. Absolutely. Maybe, I mean, I, I do think if that's the only thing you draw, it's probably, you know, it's, it's good to learn how to draw your own characters and have your own style as well. But good as point. far as I said, I, I, you know, 10 years ago, I've, I've done art school. I've, if you look back at my DeviantArt, I was doing a lot of original art and I still do original art and a lot of it's for client work, which I can't show. Um, mm-hmm. And may, maybe maybe I could draw more original art, but uh, I do think that fan art does get a bad name too much at the same time. It shouldn't. Have you ever had anyone come at you and say, hey, that's not what Toothless looks like or whomever? I have. There are the odd people. Oh. I mean, look, most most people see it for what it is. I'm I'm doing this art in my spare time. It's different if I was employed by Disney and had done this really way out Mickey Mouse. I could understand. Okay, people are not probably going to be really happy, and they've got a right in to be respectful, but to tell me if they don't really like it, if they're respectful about it. But I did do a recent drawing of Stitch from Lilo and Stitch. It was just again, it was a Copic fan art drawing. I think I'd done after a day of freelance. Um, and I'd drawn in his real design, if people aren't aware of it, he's, um, got just totally black eyes, so just black eyeballs and they're shiny. And in this one, I had drawn him with a white eyeball with a black pupil mm-hmm. and someone tore me to strips about that it didn't, you know, that I wasn't being, um, respectful to the original design and how bad it was and, and the rest of it. And I was like, ah, mate. I've done this in my spare time. Like it really has got nothing to do with you, with you. And I don't know why you're getting so offended at this little piece of fan art waffling, waffling around on Twitter that, <laughs> you know, it's not an official piece of artwork or anything like that. But right. I, I think that's actually a thing. I also did some, you know, remember the band Gorillaz? Yeah. And they've got like just the white eyeball. I, I drew the character 2D with pupils. And I think a few people had an issue with that. As well, so maybe it's the yeah the pupil thing. 
I, I don't even know what to say. Like, I would, I'm going to guess that this person or people didn't like the Ghostbusters reboot. They were the same people who were uh, <laughs> screaming online, if it doesn't have Dan Aykroyd in it, it's not real. Exactly. And I, I like that, that new Ghostbusters reboot too, by the way. I Me like too. both of them. Yeah, I love them. Uh, let's talk a little bit about process. So you, you mentioned Copic Markers um, mm-hmm. several times. And uh, is it true? Are you, are you a Copic ambassador? Is that a thing? That's right. I was contacted by Copic Australia um, a few years ago where I was asked to be a Copic ambassador. I'd obviously been using them for X amount of time. I love them. So I agreed to be a Copic ambassador. And it's just a matter of um, when I post process videos is to make sure I mention the Copic brand mm-hmm. and and such as that. I actually, the company that um, distributes the Copics is from Melbourne and uh, they have this really, really cool paper. It's called Express at Blending Cards. I'm very happy to to use to use those. Mm-hmm. Do Are you still an ambassador to this day? I am. They, they asked me to be a lifetime ambassador. I think with the original, when I was an original Copic ambassador, I got sent a few pens and some paper and the lifetime ambassador, you don't get any of that. It's just the prestige of the name. Um, but as I said, if I if I didn't like the Copic brand, I wouldn't um, wouldn't use them. I wouldn't have that official tag to my name, but right. I do. Right. So yeah, I'm I happy. Mean, clearly, happy about you use that. them. Um, so so I mean, obviously, you use them. I'm gonna I'm gonna after this interview, I'm going to um, contact Nutella and and ask them if I can be their Nutella ambassador because <laughs> God knows I use a lot of that product. That's right. <laughs> um, so your process is, is you know, um, as seen through your number of videos online, you use Copic markers. What else do you use? Like, what is your process? Take us through your process in a nutshell from blank page to finished piece of art. Well, I sort of have them in two, two categories, and that is traditional art and my digital art. My traditional art is where I use my Copic markers. So I, I said I have a blank piece of paper and I'll do some sketching on it and then I'll ink it up and colour it with the Copic markers and it's a finished piece of art. I'll sometimes have it for sale in my store. I'm happy for them to go to home since they will sit like just in a drawer and gather dust mm-hmm. if, they, um, if I keep them. Mm-hmm. My digital work, um, I use a Syntec and draw and colour completely in Photoshop I did up until about two years ago or three years ago, I was with my digital art. I was kind of like a combination of the traditional and the digital. I was sketching and inking on paper. Then I was scanning it and then coloring it in Photoshop. But I felt um, with, with more work coming my way and more deadlines, I found that was a bit of a time waste, especially particularly when, editors and, and so forth want you to um, make revisions with your drawings with instead of like redraw re sketching and re-inking the whole thing and re-scanning it it's just easy now to make all those um, revisions in Photoshop mm-hmm. I'm assuming you use layers and that's right yeah so I can just if someone says oh, I want her arm in a different direction if an art director wants you know 
a direction like that, I can just now erase it or remove that layer and just move the arm rather than either rubbing it out or, or redrawing the whole thing and re-scanning it. Mm-hmm. Do you listen to music while you create art? Yeah, I always do. Um, it's either podcasts, which... Um, but I think with podcasts, when you're listening to things, especially particularly in the sketching process and the inking, I can't be distracted, so I have the music on. When I'm um, colouring in and stuff, it, it's okay to have, you know, t- uh, podcasts or TV. But, yeah, I, I do listen to a lot of music on Spotify. and um, Like what? Gosh, I'm a girl of the 90s. It's like Tori Amos, Sarah McLaughlin, a Melbourne singer here called Adelita, who's really good. Um, and I've also, having Spotify, I've actually listened to a lot of um, album soundtracks because it's just that music, it's not even um, any lyrics. I love the, um, I actually always have loved the piano soundtrack, Jude, um, the Carol, the movie Carol's got a beautiful Mm -hmm. soundtrack. So I listen to a lot of that sort of stuff too. And when I do my process videos, I will usually have something like that playing because it's sort of like lifting the curtain, I suppose, as to how I create my artwork or, or inviting people. This is what I do, this is what I have my music on and, and so that does help me. I think it's a you know mood lifter. Mm-hmm. I do the same thing with um, Star Wars soundtracks, but not while I'm drawing. Instead, while I'm running, you'd be surprised how that plays when you listen to the Star Wars soundtrack and run. It it fits for some reason. It makes total sense. Like the, you hear the Imperial March, and it makes you want to run faster. I don't know. <laughs> it makes me want to run faster I- anyway. I remember back in the day listening to my iPod, and I do think when you are listening to music and, you you know, when you're out and about, it kind of can change your perspective on things. Definitely, definitely. You know, um, there's a there's an, a band, sort of a one-woman band, I think that you would really dig. The band's called Japanese Breakfast. Have you ever heard of them? No, I'll write them down, though. Yeah, Japanese Breakfast, and I believe the lead singer is, I believe her name is um, it's Michelle Zahner. Gosh, I hope I'm right. Yeah. And she's this sort of Korean-American uh, singer-songwriter. And her work is really chill. And it has that tinge going all the way back to our early convers- earlier part of our conversation with the 80s. It has a tinge of 80s to it. Mm-hmm. It's a really great drawing kind of music. I think you dig it. You might see it pop up in one of my next process videos. That would be awesome. I'll definitely be checking it out. Thanks for that. Sure thing. So let's kind of tie all of this together a little bit uh you've said that being an illustrator is a is a journey that is both long and sparse Mm -hmm. what what did you mean by that it's uh, illustration and drawing like anything i think takes years of practice takes years of you know harnessing your craft which I feel like I'm still learning all the time so in that in that way it is very long and it can be solitary unless you're in a studio which particularly here in Melbourne you don't have any of that so it it can be that's why I have my music and my cat Louie around me I I don't feel too lonely but it can be a lonely sort of journey but I also think it as something that has given me so much drawing so Mm -hmm. while it can be long and it can be solitary it's also, in my eyes, really rewarding. Mm-hmm. What would you say to folks sort of listening in who may either have just graduated or they're kind of 
still hacking away at, at wanting to be an illustrator full-time or even part-time, uh, what advice would you give to them based on what you've experienced along the way? It's a cliche, but it really would be about in, be enjoying the journey because I think people are always saying, when I'm going to be better, when I'm going to be this, when, you know, and it won't happen where you just look at it and go, oh, wow, I'm, you know, I'm feeling pretty good with my, with my artwork. So I think to be satisfied with the small victories that you're achieving, I also think it's really, really important to enjoy what you're doing, enjoy drawing. And another thing which I had the luxury of not having 10 years ago is social media. I think it's a really, really great tool. Like I said, I've, I've gained employment from it. I've got people that have followed my journey, which I'm really, really appreciative of, but placing too much emphasis on it and placing too much emphasis on how many likes you have or how many followers you have is really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Look at your work. You're your best judge of what your work is like and how you're doing. I'm always evaluating, Erin, you know, too much of this, not enough of that. And I think really trust that inner voice and because you will your your body will guide you to doing what's right. To learn more about Aaron, visit AaronHunting.com. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it online, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a positive rating and review. This helps us find new listeners and, on a personal note, it would be nice to know that the podcast is helping. Continue the conversation in the comments section of each episode at illustrationdepartment.com forward slash podcast. This podcast is produced by the Illustration Department, a global leader in online education for illustrators. Visit us at illustrationdept.com for class offerings, testimonials, the alumni showcase, and more. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.